whenever you're thinking about vicious, gruesome, bloodthirsty murders, usually the mind kind of portrays the murderer as a male. But tonight we have tales of three women who can really give the boys a run for their money. It's Hang on a second. I, mine's about a woman, but she's the victim. <laughs> oh, jeez. We're just leaving. My the, we're just gonna leave this in the intro. Fuck it. Well, <laughs> My lady is not a murderer. Holy <laughs> shit! I'm the only one that's doing ladies' night with the ladies being a murderer. <laughs> Oh, I didn't say my bitch was not a badass, but she is not a murderer. I see. Uh, for one of them, it's ladies' night. Yay. <laughs> You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. It's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are coming at you with Ladies' Night that is kind of not what we all thought, but it's still, there's ladies involved. <laughs> One way or the other, there's ladies involved. Ladies. <laughs> ladies. Before we get to that, and before we do our real quick rays of light, we just wanted to mention and remind you of our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where we put our little mini episodes, the old tiny crimies. They come out every week. They're 20 to 30 minutes long. And we just dive into a case that generally is not something that we can get enough material for a full length episode. They're super fun. It's one of us telling the story to the other two, much like you're going to see tonight. This and so is, come and check it. This is kind of a three way old tiny crimey. It really is. Yes, it really is. A menage a tiny. <laughs> I, I have a copy of that video just midgets everywhere <laughs> so yeah patreon.com slash old time damn it patreon.com slash old timey crimey and if you're not the type that likes a long-term relationship we totally get it you can leave a buck on the nightstand on our paypal just using the email old crimey at gmail.com and a real quick reminder to come hit us up on the social media we are old timey crimey can you believe it in all of those places on facebook instagram and twitter just come see us check out you know pictures related to the episode and sometimes we just put up random stuff and there's cats there's there's cats too so so yeah, that was just my real quick getting all that stuff out there at the top of the episode. Once in a while, I want to do that just to catch you people who skip through at the end. I see I see you. I see you hitting that 15 seconds button. I see it. I can't do it because I have to edit the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, real quick before we get to our cases, phrase of light. Let's let's go ahead and go in the order that we're going to do the episode. So Scott. I, uh, I got a message the other day from my girlfriend, the lovely Ebony Island Princess Ariana. And she goes, there's something I, I got you. It's, uh, it's in a box on your porch whenever you get home. I love you. And don't forget you love me. And it was a little creepy. It's like, is this a poisonous snake? What is this? Squ Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. Like a scorpion, something <laughs> like that. I come home. I open it. It's a little tiny knitted Optimus Prime. And I was just <laughs> like, yeah, this is the woman for me. Absolutely. This is the woman for me. Thank you, Lord in heaven above. I'm I'm such a happy man. Aww. That is fantastic. 
warms our cold little hearts. Oh, and while it's my turn, I just want to give a huge uh, thank you going out to Grace Williams 91. Uh, over on Fiverr, who is doing some uh, doing some promotion for the podcast? Huge thank you going out to the uh, going out to her. Thank you so much for helping us grow. Yeah, we're looking forward to see what comes of that. It's very exciting. Uh, Amber, ray of light. Uh, I think my ray of light is I got word this week that my brother is coming to visit, which is very exciting. I haven't seen him in a long time. Um, so he will be in, in a few weeks and only for two days, but it, it'll still be nice to get to hang out with them a little bit. So that's my, my little ray of light is my big brother's coming. That's so fun. That's awesome. That you get to see him. Yeah. Well, he, when you live across the country from each other, it's really difficult to like arrange to hang out. So <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, my ray of light is, uh, ducks and tomatoes. <laughs> um, we have Are the... you doing some sort of weird hybrid experiment? <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of have already done the experiment because we give the ducks tomatoes in the winter and then in the, the, the summer we see what pops up in, in or near their pen because tomatoes <laughs> aren't digested and we get duck tomatoes every summer since we've had the ducks. Behold, the duck tomato. So we get surprise tomatoes. It's always like, hmm, what did they plan for us this year? So, yeah, but what they like to do is the, the tomato garden is right next to their pen. And when Jackson and or I are harvesting, it's mostly Jackson because my back still sucks. Um, they know that if the, he finds any split tomatoes, he will throw them at the ducks. And the ducks love tomatoes, as you might have guessed. Well, it is absolutely hilarious because with the pen right next to the tomato garden, even if their doors open, they will hang out in the pen waiting for the split tomatoes. And when you throw them on top of the pen, there's like a, a netting on top to uh, to keep predatory birds from getting to them when they're in their pen. It, basically, it, it, the tomato falls onto the net and then the ducks leap up to try and grab it in their bills and they'll in the process pull down the net and then the, the tomato pops up and falls back down again so it's like popcorn <laughs> <laughs> and it is just ridiculous and adorable i'll try to get a video and put it up on the social media because it's just it's just way too funny <laughs> so so yeah that is my ray of light now this week we are switching it up a little bit normally as you know if you're a longtime listener or if you're just joining us hi uh normally we will kind of all collaborate on the same case this week we decided we wanted to basically present you with three old tiny crimies if you've listened to our feed back in the spring we released several of those on the main feed um so those are you can listen to and then the rest are off on our patreon where you can access them for as little as five dollars a month so yeah um these are you know this is basically a taste of what we do with the old tiny crimies and it's fun for us because we get to surprise each other with the details of the case so i know that when i'm researching i'm always like oh i wonder if amber and scott found that and this time it's, it's all of it. You never found any of it because I did all this one. <laughs> so and, and it's the same for Scott and same for Amber. So here we go. Ladies night. Scott, what have you got for us? Oh, I got Sada Ebe. Sada Ebe was the seventh of eight children of Shigayoshi and Katsu Abe. And these were some kind of well-to-do people. They were an upper middle class family of tatami mat makers in Tokyo's Kanda neighborhood. Yes, I said all that 
I'm kind of proud of myself. I practiced. Good job. So only four of the Abe children survived to adulthood. adulthood, and That's right, adulthood. That's the word I'm going to fuck up on. (laughs) (laughs) Which, if anybody knows me, completely understands why. Sada was the youngest of the survivors. And he, uh, Sada's father, who was kind of older at the time, he was 52 whenever Sada was born in May 28th, 1905. He was described by, by the police as an honest and upright man. He didn't really have any vices, didn't have any brushes with the law. And the, the only thing that anybody could say bad about him was he had some, ex- some extravagances he was somewhat self-centered and sought his mother pretty much the same. No moral blemishes on her record, no legal trouble, but the children, not quite so much. Sada's brother Shintaro was a wo- known womanizer. After his marriage ended, he ran away with his parents' money. Her sister Taruko was known to have several lovers, so much so that I guess, I guess this is just what you did in Japan at the time. Sada's father sent Taruko to work in a brothel. At the time, it wasn't an uncommon way to punish female sexual promiscuity. That's right. Oh, you like fucking? I'll I'll send you to a brothel where you'll get paid to do it. That'll that fucking like when, teach you. Is that like when when you catch your kid smoking, so you make a pack like smoke the whole pack? Mm-hmm. Like that's what that is. You like you like the dick. Here's twenty of them. Here's twenty of them. <laughs> Exactly what I thought. It's fucking great is what it is. It's absolutely incredible. I got one for every hole. Anyway. But Taruko's past wasn't really considered a hindrance to marriage. And pretty soon she married. Sada, her mother doted on her. She was pretty much allowed to do what she, she wished. She took lessons in singing, playing the shamisen. The uh, shamisen is kind of like, have you ever seen like in like old Japanese movies, the, the person plucking one string on a guitar and then they sing a long note and then they pluck the next string? That's that's the shamisen. Okay. And she was a geisha. And they at the time, geishas were considered very glamorous celebrities. But it was kind of a thing. Things weren't always good. She fell into a group of teenagers uh, that kind of, kind of independent. And at the age of 14, during one of her outings with this group, she was raped by one of her friends. Oh, no. Yeah. Parents initially def- defended her. They supported her. But after this, she became a difficult person to deal with. She was irresponsible. She was uncontrollable. Uncontrollable. And they sent her to a geisha house in Yokohama in 1922. These parents just love sending their what they consider their problems away, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. And even though she was a geisha and she originally enjoyed it, then it was frustrating and disappointing. To become a true star amongst geisha, it required an apprenticeship from childhood. Years spent training in music, in massage, the arts. And Abe never progressed beyond a low rank. And it was just, essentially, she was, a, uh, she was a prostitute. She worked for five years as a prostitute, eventually contracted syphilis. And she would, uh, she would have to be required to undergo regular physical examinations. She decides, fuck this, I'm done. 
she goes off to a better paying profession. So she, her better paying uh, profession was another type of prostitute. Uh, instead of working in a geisha house, no, she works in Tobata brothel. Uh, but she was a troublemaker. She stole money from clients. Attempted to leave the brothel several times, but was tracked down. And she eventually succeeded in escaping the brothel, began working as a waitress. She wasn't satisfied with the wages. Guess what? She's a prostitute again. And then in 1933, Abe's mother died and she continues to do prostitution. And then her father becomes gravely ill. She, she cares for him. This, this man that sent her away, that didn't see her as a daughter, saw her as a problem. She sends, uh, she takes care of this guy for 10 days until his deaths. Um, now here's where it gets a little interesting. She begins to work as an apprentice at a Yoshidaya restaurant, February 1st, 1936. The owner of this establishment was Kichizo Ishida. He's 42 years old. He'd worked his way up. He was an apprentice whenever he was younger. He was specialized in eel dishes because, I don't know, everything the Japanese eat is like some weird Adam's family thing. I don't understand it. Abe joins the restaurant. Ishida was known as a womanizer, but guess what Abe does? Can I just pause and ask, have you not had sushi, Scott? I, sushi's one thing. And usually the sushi, I just go for like the veggie sushi. I'll do, I won't do like tuna or eel sushi or anything like that. The well, sushi... Eels Eel is delicious, but eel is always cooked because eel blood is poisonous to humans. That's delightful. Yeah, that's an animal <laughs> that nobody wants us to eat, but... No, like it's... Okay, so, so the thing with cooking eel, it's very difficult because to skin an eel is very difficult because the, the skin is very slippery. So what they do is they actually nail the head of the eel to a board and then they peel the skin off like a, like a gross banana, right? And then there are world's hundreds... most terrifying circumcisions on Fox. <laughs> and then there are hundreds and hundreds of bones. So to fillet, it's very slippery. It's got lots of tiny bones. It is very difficult to do. And so like it's it's impressive that he was good at eel because it's a very difficult thing to be good at. Hmm. Did not know that. I knew about the poisonous blood, but I didn't know about the uh, about the hundreds and hundreds of bones. But it kind of makes sense. They're like a, a fish noodle. Yes. <laughs> fish yeah. noodle. I'll have the, the fish noodle roll. I'll have the fish noodle <laughs> roll. No, whenever I have sushi, I usually go for like the pineapple and avocado. Pineapple yeah. and avocado. That's my favorite sushi. I love it. I love avocado it. should not even be in sushi. That is an American thing. Okay, I've let us down the track. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I love eel. I'm going to no. stick up for it. All right. No, you, you, you tied it in, Amber. But we'll, we'll, let, we'll let Scott continue. So Abe and Kichizo Ishida begin to have a sexual relationship. They, they like, fuck along to, to romantic music, which is being played live in the restaurant. They just fucked and... and <laughs> They, they meet uh, April 23rd, 1936. They, they meet for a prearranged sexual encounter at a tea house, uh, which is in Japan. That's like the equivalent of a love hotel. 
They're only planning for a short fling, but instead the couple remain sex locked for four fucking days. Whoa. Right? Oh they my. drink, they have sex. Occasionally they bring in a geisha and the geisha sings while they have sex. And then <laughs> they, they have maids come in and serve sake to them while they're fucking. And I mean, <laughs> it gets on, right? And then, and then Abby Lady says of Ashita, it's hard to say exactly what was so good about Ashita, but it was impossible to say anything bad about his looks, his attitude, his skill as a lover, the way he expressed his feelings. I had never met such a sexy man. Well, baby, that's just because you never met me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this cock absolutely ruined Abe. They fucked for two weeks and at the end of it she became agitated and started drinking excessively right and she she told her friends that after she was with Ashita she'd come to know true love for the first time in her life and the thought of Ashita being back with his wife what he's married yes made oh her my. intensely jealous and then she goes hmm how can I make sure this man never sleeps with another woman? And she begins to think about this. Oh, no. Oh, no. On May 9th, 1936, she attends a play in which a geisha attacks her lover with a large knife. And she goes, that's a pretty good idea. I'll do that. On May 11th, Abe pawns some of her clothing, uses the money to buy a kitchen knife. And she meets Ashita later that night, and she herself said, I pulled the kitchen knife out of my bag, threatened him as had been done in the play I'd seen, saying, Kichi, you wore that kimono just to please one of your favorite customers. You bastard, I'll kill you for that. Ashita was startled, drew away a little bit, but guess what? He's into that shit. <laughs> they start to fuck again. Oh my God. Turns out like the knife turns Ashita on, right? And Abe puts the knife, like, during their, their fucking... He, she puts the knife at the base of Ashita's penis. And she says she's going to make sure that he never plays around with another woman. And he laughs, and they fuck for two more nights. Oh, my God. At which point, they discover the joys of autoerotic asphyxiation. Abe, <laughs> in what I'm going to call anger lust, begins choking Ashita. And he said... Keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and then and he goes, you ought to try this. And she goes, okay. So while they're fucking, they're like fucking choking each other, right? May 16th, 1936. Remember, nonstop fucking, right? Abe, and choking. Uh, uh, fucking choking, knife play. Abe uses the sash of her kimono to cut off Ashita's breathing during an orgasm, and they both fucking love that. And they continue to do it for two more hours. Oh my god, these <laughs> people have, yeah. where do they get the energy? Right? Once Abe stopped the strangulation, Ashita's face became distorted and would not return to its normal appearance. Also known as, you've done this so much, you've given him a blood clot that's gone to his brain, and he's had a stroke. Ashita oh, no. takes 30 tablets, 30 tablets of a sedative known as Calmotin. <laughs> Let me put that to you again. A sedative 
known as Calmo 10. That is del- delightful, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> Calmo 10. Uh, it's, uh, it's also known as Bromosoval. It was uh, discovered by the Knoll Corporation in 1907, patented in 1909, and it was, mar- it was an over-the-counter medicine in Asia because those people eat eels. Um, uh, eels are delicious! <laughs> Raisins! Stop, stop, being, stop being food racist. <laughs> Ashita starts to doze off, and he goes, as he's, as he's dozing off, he goes, you'll put the cord around my neck and squeeze it again while I'm sleeping, won't you? If you start to strangle me, don't stop because it's so painful afterwards. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. And Abe kind of goes, do you want me to kill you? Maybe he's joking? I don't know. About two in the morning, May 18th, 1936, Ashida was asleep. Abe wraps her sash twice around his neck and strangles him to death. She later tells the police, after I killed Ashida, I felt totally at ease, as though a heavy burden had been lifted from my shoulders, and I felt a sense of clarity. She was just mesmerized by, by the cock. Oh, <laughs> you have no fucking clue. Are you ready for this? Probably not. <laughs> after, and I'd like to say this is as bad as it gets, but it isn't. She, she took his dick. She took his dick, didn't she? After lying with Ashita body, Ashita's body for a few hours and kind of stroking it, she takes the kitchen knife and cuts off his dick and balls. Wraps them in a magazine cover and takes them with her. With <laughs> the blood, she writes, Sada Ishida no Kichi Futare Kiri, which uh, means we, Sada and Kichizi Ishida, are alone. That's written on the left thigh and on the bed sheet. She then carves her name, Sada, into his left arm. She takes his underwear and puts them on herself and leaves about 8 a.m. Tells the staff, he's tired. Don't, don't bother him. My. After wow. this, Abe goes and meets a former lover named Goro Omoya. And she's apologetic to him. Omoya is unaware of the murder, and he assumes that she's apologizing for taking another lover, but really what Abe was apologizing for in kind of a weird way was the damage his political career was going to take. (laughs) Ah. Uh, And uh, on May 19th, 1936, newspapers picked up the story after the body was discovered. Omiya's career was fucking ruined because, yeah, it's his fault. (laughs) (laughs) And now they're on the search for Abe. On May 19th, 1936, Abe goes shopping. She sees a movie. Guess what's with her? The, the penis and mm-hmm. the balls. Oh, yeah. my. Yeah. Under a pseudonym, she stays at an inn in Shinagawa, where she had a massage and drank three bottles of beer. She spends the day writing farewell letters to Omiya, a friend, Ashida, and she plans to commit suicide. But before she commits suicide, uh, what's one more romp in the sack with Ashida? No, 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 ew, no, ew, no, ew, no. Yes, called it. (laughs) She said, I felt attached to Ashida's penis. This is Scott talking. The person who wasn't attached to Ashida's penis was Ashida. (laughs) (laughs) Abe continues. 
and thought that only after taking leave from it quietly could I then die. I unwrapped the paper holding them and glazed at his penis and scrotum. I put his penis in my mouth and even tried to insert it inside me. It didn't work, however, though I kept trying and trying. Then I decided I would flee to Osaka, staying with a sheetus penis all the while. In the end, I would jump from a cliff on Mount Ikoma while holding on to his penis. Let that, you know, let that sink in. Oh, it's, 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 it has it's sunk in. Scott, sometimes you can gloss over things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't. I do not. <laughs> Four o'clock in the afternoon. Police detectives, suspicious of the weird alias, uh, go to Abe's room. They open up. It's the police. And she opens the door and goes, don't be so formal. You're looking for Sade Abe, right? Well, that's me. I'm Sada Abe. And the police go, I don't know. I don't know if you are or you're not. And she goes, here's cock and balls. <laughs> she, she uses <laughs> Ashita's genitalia as proof that she's her. I just, picture, I just picture like this one policeman going like, you know what driver's license would have done? <laughs> now, this is my identification now. This is it. This is how I am to be known by this penis and balls. Major credit card would have worked too. military id no costco now i don't get to sleep a full night's sleep for the rest of my life thanks minimum (laughs) wage police job (laughs) (laughs) so abe's arrested interrogated she goes they they ask the question we're all wondering why yeah and abe replied because i couldn't take his head or body with me I wanted to take the part of him that brought me back to the most vivid memories. And uh, the interrogating officer said immediately she became excited and her eyes sparkled in a strange way. And then she told him, I loved him so much. I wanted him all to myself. But since we were not husband and wife, as long as he lived, he could be embraced by other women. I knew that if I killed him, no other woman could ever touch him again. So I killed him. Mm, if I can't have you, nobody can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so says every Lifetime movie from the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> December 21st, 1936, Abe is convicted of murder in the second degree and mutilation of a corpse. Prosecution demanded 10 years. Abe goes, hey, I'd like the death penalty. And <laughs> they go, six years in prison. That'll do. What? Mm-hmm. Six years in prison. <laughs> But, oh, she only but served she, five. Uh, no. No. Mm-hmm. No. Now no. here's where it gets even weirder. Oh, oh good. <laughs> the police record of the interrogation and confession becomes the national bestseller of 1936 in Japan. <laughs> I can imagine that was some riveting reading, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. It is a natural bestseller. Uh, Upon release from prison, Abe assumes an alias. Uh, She was the mistress of a serious man. and She referred to in her memoirs as why. That's right. She wrote an autobiography about herself. When Abe's true identity became known to wise friends and family, she broke off the relationship. The there are kind of a lot of books, a lot of movies written about her. There's one from 1937, a psychological diagnosis of Abe Sada, like an entire book just about her brain. 
1946, the writer Ango Sakaguchi interviewed Abe, treating her as an authority on both sexuality and freedom. He called her a tender, warm figure of salvation for future generations. In 1947, Ichira Kimura writes The Erotic Confessions of Abe Sade. 100,000 copies sold. Oh my God. Right? Wow. Right? Her own autobiography, The Memoirs of Abe Sada, published in 1948, did very, very well. The first edition of the magazine True Story, also known as Jitsua in Japan, in 1948, featured unpublished photos with the headline, Aero Guru of the Century, first public release, pictorial of the Abe Sade incident. Pictorial? Mm-hmm. Pictorial. As in pictures from the crime scene? Yep. Oh. Is there pictures, are there pictures of the cock? I don't know. I couldn't find anything. Whenever she was seen in public, men would often shout out, like uh, from pubs, they'd put their hand over their crotches and shout things like, hide the knives, and I'm afraid to go and pee. <laughs> Ave didn't like this. She would slap like, slap like banister. Like when she was going down the stairs, she'd slap the banister in anger and stare the crowd into an uncomfortable and complete silence. She stared down entire crowds. <laughs> I mean, she really had balls. <laughs> not, not her own. <laughs> she died 1971 at the age of 66. That is the story of Sada Eba. That was fascinating <laughs> and riveting and so weird and so Scott. <laughs> Thank you. That was very Scott. Thank you. You're yeah. welcome. Very well told, and sometimes it, it, in the worst way. <laughs> You're welcome. Some some imagery I really could have lived without, but that's okay. That's okay. That's what we're here for. We're here for imagery we can't live without. Amber, do you have some imagery we can't live without or could live without? <laughs> I do. I do. So I'm going to tell you guys a story about Alice Diamond otherwise known by some of the newspapers as Diamond Alice. That's um, not clever at all. Okay. So Alice was actually born Alice Elizabeth Black to Thomas Diamond and Marianne Alice Blake. You notice the last names don't match here? Yeah. What's that about? Okay. So her parents applied for a maternity birth under the name Black because they had they, they got pregnant with her out of wedlock. Um, so they apparently applied to have her with this different last name to avoid uh, the stigma of being an illegitimate child. Um, but then they also got married before she was born. So it was completely unnecessary. <laughs> so like, I, I really don't understand that, but, but fine. Um, so they also did this because her father, Thomas Diamond, was a criminal. He had at least three convictions, one of which was uh, very widely known. He was arrested for assaulting the son of the Lord Mayor of London at a political meeting. Oh, my. He, he punched his head through a pane of glass, severely injuring him. Whoa. So, so there are some accounts that say that they changed the last name of Alice just to kind of avoid that stigma. Um, but... She, okay, so she's born at the Lambeth Workhouse Hospital, and this is uh, London. And actually, Scott, our ladies were alive at the same time. Hmm. 
So Alice was born June 22nd, 1896. So she was a little before your lady, but but they existed at the same time. Alice in England and, and uh, your crazy bitch in Japan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Alice was the eldest of seven children. And she was um, basically a beast for the time. She was five foot eight inches when the average height for a man was five six. Wow, that's okay. Yeah, wow, that's pretty so, big for the time. So she she was very very tall for a lady, um, and she started following in her dad's footsteps, which is part of the reason that her last name was Diamond. So um, she she was bigger than most men, and she started her criminal career when she was about seventeen. She got arrested for the first time for stealing from a hat shop on Oxford Street. And uh, then she was arrested for using another girl's card in an ammunition factory. Uh, police believe that she was trying to procure explosives for use in safe blowing. Oh, this girl is very Amber. <laughs> I love her. All right. Safe blowing is whenever you use a condom during oral sex. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so at the time, women often helped their male family members that were criminals all the time, where they would take the tools away after they broke into a place. So there were very often accomplices to crimes. But because they were just taking away tools or taking away evidence, they never got the money from the crimes. Like, they never got anything for helping. So Alice was one of the reasons that this changed. Um, because of, of her arrest, she got the attention of the Elephant Boys, which was a popular male crime ring. <laughs> I'm just picturing a whole bunch of people with neurofibromatosis. <laughs> well, the Elephant Boys ended up having a, a cutaway gang of just women. So it became the, the 40 elephants or the 40 thieves. And this was nothing but women that, that started their own little crime ring, which I think is awesome. That is fantastic, yeah. <laughs> so this was originally headed by Mary Carr. But when Mary Carr passed away, the elephant boys decided that Alice was perfect for leadership. So she actually became the head of the elephant's female gang at age 20. So she became queen of the 40 thieves. Oh, that is just, I, I know it's crime. I know, but it's still breaking through that glass ceiling and in the best way. Yeah. Queen of the 40 thieves. It, is, has, it has such a romantic feel to it. I love it. Yeah, it does. That's pretty nice. That is so, pretty nice. Well, and, and this makes me love her more. So as, as soon as she was announced to be the queen of the 40 thieves, she decided that everybody, including herself, needs to act the part. So she wore big fur coats, had big hair, big makeup. My favorite is her hands were covered in diamond rings because not only were they pretty, but it, it was said that her punch was harder than a man's. Huh. Because she, it would rip your face off. 
Exactly. She used the diamond rings as like brass knuckles. So um, because of this, the police started calling her Diamond Alice. Because apparently she had a mean right hook and would hit cops. And once said, who needs knuckle dusters when you have diamond rings? Oh, I love her. And I'm so jealous that you found her first. <laughs> Not going to lie. Got three quarters of a stiffy for this woman. Right. <laughs> so, so Alice took over the, the leadership of, of this gang and they were basically organized shoplifters. And um, she was very, very smart and would work London in um, like different areas, different sectors, right? So when cops would start to notice a pattern with everybody being over on this street, she would move everybody to the next street. So she was actually like, she had great tactical knowledge of how to like avoid having her or her girls get arrested. Um, now the females were actually more successful than the men here. Because back in this time, the women shoppers were usually given privacy because they're ladies. So um, they would go into like specialty clothing shops and they would shoplift. Um, they actually had specially lined clothing to shoplift with where they would have like hidden pockets, multiple layers. And they would have like these really successful raids of like elegant businesses at the time. Um, they, they would get away with like long coats and they would have bags under their dresses that they would shove everything they could in. Uh, actually one, one of her girls was caught once with a, a big purse underneath her skirt. It was a, a bag made of alpaca fur and it was suspended at her waist and hung down to her knees. And they found 45 stolen items inside. So like they were very, very creative. And they were making a lot of money with these heists because they would get silks and furs and all this stuff that they could make a lot of money with. And Man. it would help them look so fancy. Oh, damn straight. It's, oh, <laughs> look, a pretty hat. <laughs> it's, you're going to put it on and make all the other ladies jealous in, in your fucking crime right. Okay. But also, along with these, these heists, they would, um, they would also work as housemaids with stolen credentials and then they would either ransack the home or seduce the man of the home into paying for their silence. Oh. Mm. <laughs> so it was like, okay, so do I want to steal other stuff or sleep with the husband and then blackmail him? Hmm. What am I going to do today? <laughs> Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Let me get this straight. Uh, I, I saw you steal something. So... You would like me to fuck you, and in return, uh, you'll never say another word again. I see this as a complete and utter win. <laughs> no, no, flip that. They would seduce the men and then make the men pay them to keep their mouth shut, and so that oh. way they didn't get, like, a divorce. See, I need to read the fine print. Yeah. <laughs> so they would think, like, this hot maid is just coming on to him, and, and like, this is going to be great. I mean, she, she works here. I get to see her all the time whenever I want. Oh, no. <laughs> Fool you. My <laughs> wife's into this shit. She was in the closet the whole time, beaten off. <laughs> but um, so in, in its heyday, 
the the 40 thieves or the 40 elephants uh numbered more than 70 and they were just nearly unstoppable honestly <laughs> and it's, it was amazing that it's nothing but women um so they uh once they would pillage stores or homes they would use high-powered automobiles to outrun the police and then oftentimes if the police even caught them the goods weren't in the vehicle they would have other girls or even sometimes a male member of their like their brother gang take away the stuff they stole and so all they would have is like an empty suitcase or they would drop off an empty suitcase at different drop-off points so that like the, the police would go the wrong way to try to get the goods back. Like this was just brilliant to me. That, so, that's so with stunning. Me. <laughs> that is absolutely stunning. I love the sneakiness. It, like it, it's amazing. Like I, I kind of think that some of this would still even work now. Only um, one way to find out. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Old Timey Crimey is sponsored by Podcorn. Here at Old Timey Crimey, we absolutely love, love, love Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities like host-read ads, interview segments, and topical discussions. All you have to do is browse through the many sponsorship opportunities, pick the ones that are right for you, and send the sponsors a proposal. You can do written or voice proposals, or both. Telepathy, not yet supported, but hopefully soon. Podcorn <laughs> helps us as independent podcasters pay for the things we need to keep you spellbound with tales of historical crime every week. I love getting the email that says, congratulations, you've been hired. It makes my day. And with Podcorn, we have transparency, creative freedom, and full control over how and when we monetize. There's no middleman, and podcasters of all sizes can set their own rates and collaborate with brands without any exclusivities. Click the link in our show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Oh my goodness. So uh, around 1890 is, is when they, they broke away and they actually very soon got a surprisingly violent reputation. They were unafraid to wield a hat pin. <laughs> Dude, a razor. Have, you, have you ever seen a hat pin? Well, yes, they would use hat pins or a razor wrapped in a handkerchief or their bare fists. Well, with their diamonds. <laughs> These but are some like badass bitches. This is a group of really unafraid badass women. Damn. Which, but they guarded their territory ferociously, it said. Um, so if they would find a thief who was not part of their gang on their turf, they would demand a percentage of what they stole. And those who refused were kidnapped, beaten, and or ransomed. Jesus Christ. 
No, no joke. This is this is like the all-girl mafia, and I love it. They fucking ransomed other criminals. <laughs> they did. They would <laughs> kidnap other criminals because they stole something from their turf. The sheer badassery. Yeah, West London is theirs and theirs alone. That's all there is to it. But they actually, like, Alice actually had a code of conduct for them. It, it, they called it the Hoister's Code, which is not a fun word. I don't like that word. But anyway, <laughs> so they were not allowed to drink the night before a job. It was very important that they get a good night's sleep. Makes sense. When you were clear-headed. You were not allowed to do a job wearing the clothes that you had stolen. Because that would be incriminating if you did get caught. Very, and, very smart. And you are never allowed to help the police. Well, one would uh, hope. Obviously. <laughs> but but loyalty was uh, hugely important to them because the members were frequently arrested. So if, if you could get one person to turn, you could arrest a lot more people. Yeah. So loyalty was a very, very big deal to Alice because, I mean, these ladies, they did get caught a lot. But if they didn't have the stuff on them or they didn't have enough evidence, usually it was a quick turnaround and they were back out on the street. As long as nobody talked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the other parts of this code was that um, you, if you were in the gang, had to be prepared to give somebody an alibi at a moment's notice. So it was, it was just like an automatic, like, yeah, no, I was with her. She was me the whole night. Um, and they also had a fund put aside for uh, families when members were sent to prison so that they would take care of the members' families while they were away. That's amazingly forward thinking. Yeah. This is what happens when ladies do crime. They also incorporate social welfare. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> but like they were, they were brilliant. So they, they broke down West London into what they called cells. There was four or five different uh, cells that they would operate, but they would only do one at a time. And during, like when they were in the cell, they would observe the, their targeted clothing and jewelry shops. They would pay attention to when the staff went on breaks, when they had new people working that didn't have as much experience. And they would use all this observation, like basically casing the places to hit everything they wanted to hit. Um, they would use brand new members to the group as decoys to distract the attendants at the store and act suspiciously. While the the big girls went in and took everything and walked out without getting noticed. Or if the, the thieves were too well known, they would go in and distract the attendants and the store detectives because they were obviously you'd see their face and be like, she's going to rob us. So they would surround that person while the new people that nobody knows their faces would go in and rob the place. So they worked really well as like this this team of ladies that get shit done. Um, so even though, uh, most of them were very, very good at stealing, they rarely got caught, but sometimes they did. So one notorious member, Maggie Hughes, was caught stealing a tray of 34 diamond rings. This was in 1923. So while running out of the store, she ran straight into the arms of a police officer. Oops. And they fell in love. No, they did <laughs> oh, not. Damn. No, Maggie went to jail. But Maggie was one of Alice's closest friends. 
And then on December 20th, 1925, Alice's rule came to an end after she and Hughes, and Hughes had, had gotten out at that point, but they had incited a riot against a former member of the 40 Elephants. So somebody left their gang, they got mad, they started a riot. Wow. Damn. Not a fight. A no. riot. Way better than a fight. They started a riot. But Alice and Maggie both got arrested. Alice was sent to jail for 18 months, and Hughes was only sent for five. But by the time Alice got out, a year and a half later, another thief by the name of Lillian Rose Kendall had taken over her spot. So Alice gets out and sees how young and energetic and creative Kendall was. She goes, no, you can keep it. Because Kendall had already earned the nickname the Bobbed Hair Bandit. Because we're in the 20s. This girl looks like a flapper through and through. She had the short fringe and the side curls. And uh, one of her favorite things to do was just drive a car through the front of a store and then steal everything. Yes! <laughs> so Alice goes, drive you know through what? window, now there's one. Yeah, so Alice is like, you know what, Kendall? You do you, boo-boo. You can keep it. And so Kendall just kept doing it, and she would smash into stores such as Cartier's on Bond Street. Just drive right through it, steal all of it. <laughs> oh, wow. Holy shit. I'm in love. Right, so Alice decided eventually that it was it was time to leave the gang. She did hang around for a little while, but um, she after she left the gang, the power and influence began to slip away. Um, even, even Maggie who was all about it began to to get out of the gang by 1938 so with with these two main badasses the whole gang kind of started to crumble and then i mean as time went on by the 50s store security had increased and and they could lock away items and honestly due to changes in what people wanted there was a lot less profit in stealing clothes you know what i mean yeah um, that makes sense yeah, and, and so by by the fifties, most most of the members had left to go to countrysides where um, smaller businesses were easier targets. But I mean, a lot of people just didn't need to be in the gang anymore because a lot of these women were doing it just to stay out of poverty. Well, if you don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to be in a gang anymore, I guess. But where's the camaraderie? Where's the fun? Where's the where's the satisfaction of a job well done and a face well punched? Well, Alice wasn't done. So after leaving the gang, Alice founded a brothel in Lambeth, where she was born. And then she would, uh, at the brothel, pass on tips to future shoplifters and future members of the 40 Elephants. So she was not like, oh, I hate them. No, she was like, no, I love it. If you want to do this, this is how you're going to do it, okay? Just tell them you know me. Um, so she was, she was girl power all the way. Ran a brothel, helped people to join the gang if they wanted to. Um, and then during World War II, she actually refused to leave London during evacuations. She just wasn't gonna. Wow. <laughs> Fuck the Nazis. So she, this is my town. Right? She just stayed there. She, whatever. Um, but uh, sadly, she was never married. She did have a relationship with Burt McDonald, one of the leaders of the Elephant Gang. Um, but they never made anything permanent. And then she ended up with multiple sclerosis, and she died at the age of 55 in 1952. Aww. But she had a good life. So the thing that drew me to Alice the most 
was it was actually an article, one of my sources. The title of the article was Who Says a Woman Can't Be Gangsta? Alice Diamond and the 40 Elephants. And I was like, yep, that's my girl right mm -hmm. there. <laughs> Who needs brass knuckles when you got diamond rings? Now, my that girl slap you up alongside the head with a dick. <laughs> Pretty sure Alice could have taken your girl, but your girl would have had no interest in Alice. <laughs> Absolutely none. Yeah. But that is that is the end of my tiny. That was, that was fantastic. Was awesome. I loved it. <laughs> Christy, what do you got for us? All right. This actually feels a little anticlimactic, but it's still a, a fascinating case, I think. Um, so uh, actually, um, Amber, when did you say that Alice Diamond was born? Alice Diamond was born June 22nd, 1896. And about two and a half weeks later, Dorothy King was born on the 10th of August, 1896. I'm so happy that all of our ladies were alive at the same time frame. That was completely accidental, but beautiful. Yeah, she literally was born three weeks later. Like, that's insane to me. I was like, I, I was matching up the dates in my head. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. All right. Dorothy King was born Anna Marie Keenan. She was the daughter of Irish immigrants, so she was a first-generation American. Her father was a watchmaker, and her mother was a laundress, and she was raised in Harlem. She was quite a pretty girl. It's hard to tell from the pictures, as, as usual, but it looks like her hair might have been blonde or red, and she wore it when, it when she got into her later years in a bob with finger waves. They're very, like, tight waves around her face. And she basically looked and dressed like your classic flapper. We have s several pictures of her, and she's very, very delightfully flapper. At the age of 18, she married a chauffeur, and about two years later, in 1916, she was cheating on him and he busted her. So that was the end of the marriage. But through him, she met a lot of people during their short time together. She met new money. She met old money. She met bootleggers and like mid-level gangsters. So she really, she really knew a lot of people. She d decided she needed to have a career, so she started her career as a model and found work as an artist model and also would work in high-end fashion shops. You know, probably they would do, you know, like special fashion shows for the higher-end clients. And that is her next entry point into meeting even more people in the big time, the wealthy, the powerful, the famous, Broadway stars, people with big, big money. It seemed for a while that she set her sights on fame. She made her way to Broadway and started auditioning. And she did snag a role in Broadway Brevities of 1920, which went on for a little over 100 showings. And now whether King was her married name or her stage name is unknown, but it's how she's actually credited in this single Broadway show that she was in. She's credited as Dorothy King. She was frequently called Dot. So that birth name is just completely out the window. Anna Marie Keenan is gone, and now we have Dorothy Dot King. But either she wasn't cut out for Broadway, or it wasn't cut out for her, because she found another avenue that suited her. 
And that was wealthy men. Ooh. Mm, yes, indeed. Works for me. She started to uh, get a glimpse of the halls of power and the men who re resided in them, and those men started getting a glimpse of her bedroom. All told, uh, from her various men, she got, and this was just in jewels, $15,000 in jewels. Mm. That is about a quarter of a million dollars in today's money, and that's not even accounting for any changes in the, the how the jewels were, would be valued over time. So she had two main men in particular. There was Jay Kearsley Mitchell. Now, he was the president of the Philadelphia Rubber Works. He was also the son-in-law of Edward Stotesbury, who was uh, big in banking and at one point was worth the equivalent of one and a half billion dollars in today's money. Man, man. Yeah, this 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 guy had estates upon estates upon estates. I mean, he he basically was like, I'm going to build a house in every state and it's going to be gigantic. Goddamn. <sighs> all we want is our crime castle. Yes, I know. We want our crime castle. We just want our $14 million crime, crime castle. I think, yeah, right. I think the three of us could live in it quite comfortably and never see each other. <laughs> I don't think it's asking too much. I don't either. I don't either. So, so you may have noticed I said that um, Mitchell was the son-in-law of Edward Stotesbury. It's because he was married to Stotesbury's daughter. Uh, he went under a fake name, John Marshall, when uh, he first met Dot and probably used that name to, you know, get her a nice apartment and everything. Then there was Albert Grimares. He was a possibly Puerto Rican shipping tycoon, but he was also called a, quote, Broadway jackal. So like a, it was a gigolo type that would hang around Broadway. And in addition, she would spend some time with the son of the U.S. Attorney General at the time, named Draper Dockerty. Well, sounds like a curtain company. That sounds like somebody <laughs> I want to punch in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Draper Dockerty. Right. These guys gave Dorothy all the jewels and money and furs she could possibly want. And sometimes they went to great lengths to do this. Grimares actually committed stock fraud and plundered his own company's accounts so he could spend it all on dots. Must have been some wow. sort of magical puss there. Must have been, yeah. In 1921 was when she met Mitchell and he got her a swanky apartment in Midtown, just two blocks from Central Park, and hired her a maid, Ella Bradford. Now... There was both an age and a power differential in here. She was 25 to his 50. And he was very powerful in providing her with everything. The practice was he would come by uh, the, the apartment building with his lawyer. His lawyer would scout out the area, make sure everything was all clear. And then the two of them would go up to Dot's apartment and have a drink together before the lawyer would skitter off to leave the lovebirds alone for a bit. My lawyer's going to help us fuck. Basically, yeah. Well, I, I, I like to think they were just putting together jigsaw puzzles. No? With their genitals. 
Yes. Insert yes, tab A into slot B. <laughs> uh, Mitchell also wrote her letters, which she did keep, but he never or rarely went out into public with her. It said never in one source, but then another source mentioned them going out on a particular night. So, But I have a quote from one of his letters. <sighs> quote, I want to see you oh so much and to kiss your pretty pretty pink toes and horrifying quote <laughs> I hate that I hate that no nobody should kiss toes that's horrible don't kink Yuck. shame me I don't want anybody to ever touch my feet no it freaks me out too I yeah. can't even get a pedicure because it scares me yeah I don't want I, anyone touching my feet <laughs> I, I make the joke and honestly there's you know what I, I try not to kink shame because there's there's room on this world for everybody but if you've got like a thing for feet stop it get help no, I, that's fine. If if they like feet and they have a lady that likes feet, it's all good. As long as I'm not near it, I'm good. Amber, you're yeah. wrong. <laughs> I'm the same. I just don't want to see it or know about it, and that's fine because, you know, it, it, that stuff should be private anyhow. So as long as I don't know about it, I'm okay. But reading it in somebody's letter, it creeps me out because then I imagine somebody touching my toes and, ah, no, 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 no. Yeah. And my mom was a nail technician so i had to get pedicures sometimes and they were i cringed the entire time it was awful so dot kept mitchell's letters in a safe in her apartment so and then as far as guamares was concerned she would actually turn around and pass mitchell's gifts on to guamares so it's like this kind of insane uh turnaround where like he spends oh no no what? Oh, did we lose Scott? No. What's, hap what's happening? What's happening? Why are you in presentation mode? What's going on? Do you not see what he just presented? I have a document open when I'm when I'm doing my story. <laughs> uh. Can we have done that at the end? I had a flow. <laughs> What is wrong with her feet? Oh my god! That is I all I can't see anything but just it's just this presentation, Scott Moore. That's all I see. That is Kanye West sucking Shaquille O'Neal's toes. No, it's okay. not. No, it's I'm not. Going to but those move are on without monstrous commentary. feet. Those <laughs> those toes are longer than my fingers. Okay, I'm sorry. The image popped right up on my screen and it was impossible to ignore. <laughs> Oh, I don't blame you. I blame Scott. Yeah, I'll take the blame. <laughs> Could have waited till the end. Could have waited till the end. It was worth it. <laughs> I can't unsee that. Yeah, for you. All right. I was doing a thing here with a story and a person and another person and then a third person. <laughs> it's so worth it. <laughs> okay, so um, Dot would... Basically, the way it worked was Guamare spent all of his money and committed fraud in order to get dot with all of his gifts and then probably was completely broke and started um beating her and then she gave him the gifts that she got from mitchell so it's this weird sort of love triangle going on but not love triangle it's more like a gift triangle it's not a thing but it is now uh yeah he would beat her pretty bad she was seen with black eyes and bruises frequently absolute all-out screaming matches were heard coming from the apartments. And they were the only two guys that she would have over. 
um, her only two lovers that she would co have would come to the apartment. At one point, a maid heard men in the apartment yelling, and she reported they'd said, quote, we can make a killing with this prize, Sap. All we need is a couple of them letters, and you better come across, end quote. So something may have been going on with those pink toes letters. Now, Dot was supposedly thinking about going to the police as things were getting pretty bad with Guimaraes. He had actually threatened her life. And it, he was trying to get her to help him blackmail someone. And she said to her masseuse, quote, I'll never stand for blackmailing my sugar daddy. I don't know why I kind of gave her a southern accent there, it, but it happened. So, And this case... And this general trend in the 20s is where we get the term sugar daddy. Well. Oh. Was, yep. It was only a couple years after this case that it made it into the Oxford English Dictionary in 1926. Hmm. And I have a list of terms revolving around that concept that I'm going to give you guys at the end because I went diving into old newspapers. <laughs> now, on March 14th, 1923, the relationship with Mitchell has been going on for a few years, but romance, my friends, is not dead. He came by around lunchtime, and he presented to her a lovely bouquet of orchids, and holding the bouquet together was another bracelet to add to her collection, or give to her other lover, made of diamond and jade? I, I can't see it. I don't like, if I can see it, I don't like it, but I want to like it. <laughs> like, I like both diamonds and jade, but I put them together and I'm like, oh, no, no. So they spend the afternoon and the evening together. Then they leave early in the evening and come back around midnight, after which time they spend a few hours together doing another jigsaw puzzle uh, before he left around 2.30 a.m. And he wouldn't have needed to, uh, in this case, go out the front door. She did have a private staircase that led to a side entrance, which begs the question, why all the shenanigans with the front entrance? Because they would use the elevator and everything. Why not just go the side entrance? I think they kind of did it for the thrill of it. You know, for the spy-ish yeah, aspect. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I think that, that was, it was a little titillating to them, perhaps. Titillating. Yes. Now, the maid comes the next day on March 15th, and the apartment is totally wrecked. It's pretty obvious it's been ransacked. And later, uh, it was found that both the $15,000 in jewels and the letters from Mitchell were missing. Mm. Yes. Dot is in bed. She's wearing a blue negligee negligee and she is dead there are bruises on her neck likely uh the result of strangulation judged to have happened around or after 6 a.m and also found in the bed with her is a bottle of chloroform which at the time was actually used as a recreational drug really <laughs> yes Chloroform is a recreational drug. 
Well, you no. don't have booze. I, I was, it's still recreational, but only for one party. <laughs> it's just like, what? It was like a the party drug of the time. It's so weird. Um, some people thought the chloroform bottle maybe indicated a suicide, but with how chloroform actually acts, it's pretty difficult to kill yourself with it. It's not impossible, but it would be, you know, like a, a little bit of a stretch. Now, Mitchell doesn't wait for the police to come to him once word gets out. He goes to them and gets his alibi checked out. Uh, the theory, as far as Mitchell's concerned, if he was the one who did it, was that the relationship had gone bad and he killed her as a result. Pretty simple chain of events. But he's cleared really quickly. Like, unsettlingly, you have a lot of money quickly. So... So, was it a relationship gone bad? Was it a robbery? Or was it blackmail? Or an attempt at blackmail that went badly? Doherty comes to the police and he's like, look, I think that Dot's brother was blackmailing or attempting to blackmail Mitchell. And he wanted the letters from Dot. And when she wouldn't give them to her, he killed her. But all that ended up doing was just got the police interested in Doherty. So he had to go through some shit for a while. So I was going to of... say, as soon as you said Doherty went to the police, I'm like, Doherty did it. Yeah. Mm. Like, aside from having a douchey name, whenever you go to the police, it's usually because you either are guilty or you somehow think it will make you look less guilty, which instead makes you look more guilty. Like, <laughs> you know, see, I... here's the thing, too. The police are really good, though, like whenever you go to them at making you feel guilty for doing it. I yeah, I uh, I was driving through East Connemaw uh, a couple of days ago on my way home from work and I see a wallet laying in the middle of the road. So I turn my car around and I go grab the wallet. There's no driver's license in it, but there's a, a couple like bank cards and there's twenty three dollars in there. So I take the wallet. I go to the East Connemaw Police Building, I knock on the door, and I go, hey, I found this wallet. Uh, there's no address in it. They're, the money's all there. Uh, if you know the person, I, I'm just assuming since, you know, you're kind of in this neighborhood, you probably know everybody. He goes, yeah, I know him. I'll get it back to him. Where did you find this wallet again? He actually said it like that. Where did you find this wallet again? Like, if I stole the wallet, I would have taken the money, uh, officer. I saw it on the street. I don't know the name of the street. I don't pay attention. I just, I, I have my home. That's it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's, that tends to be, suspicion tends to be aroused uh, pretty quickly with them. Yeah, and, and Doherty, too. And Doherty. <laughs> yeah. And then there was uh, Guimaraes. Uh, he, too, has an alibi with not one, but two witnesses his friend Edmund McBrien, and then McBrien had a girlfriend at the time, Aurelia Fisher. Um, so that got him actually cleared after a little while. He, however, does not have an alibi for the mail fraud he was committing. Oh, so, shit, son. We forgot all about that. Right? And they discovered that while they were investigating him for the Dot King murder, and he ended up in federal prison for three years. However, he was never prosecuted for the King murder. Now, within a couple weeks of the murder, there were some news articles uh, trying to float some, I think, highly unlikely theories. But all right, you, you got to make a, a 
make it interesting. The Perth Amboy Evening News out of New Jersey floated the theory that the possible attempted blackmailing could be connected with some other mysterious cases that had happened recently where blackmail was a possible theory. Among those was one of our previous cases, William Desmond Taylor. So you had Taylor, the first of these happening on February in February 1922 in California. And then a millionaire's son named Walter Ward killed a sailor and then claimed it was to save himself from a gang of blackmailers of which the sailor was allegedly part. That happened in May of 1922. In White Plains, New Jersey, nope, New York, uh, there was a double murder. Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills, uh, who may have had a little something-something going on, and I believe he either he had a wife, she had a husband, or both. <laughs> I'm not sure. We might do that one later on down the line somehow. Um, that was in September 1922. In New Brunswick, New Jersey, Mrs. Irene Sholkoff was chloroformed to death, so apparently it can happen. Although the same article said that Dot King was chloroformed to death, and that the bruises on her neck seemed to actually tell the tale. Uh, that was in New York on New Year's Eve, and five hundred and twenty thousand dollars in jewels were stolen, and that is not in today's money. Whoa! I didn't do the calculation for that in today's money because I'm pretty sure it wouldn't fit on the screen. <laughs> yeah, and then wow. the mo yeah right, and then the most recent one. You know, I got to do the calculation. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm too curious. Hang on a second. Worth $7,892,942 today. That is a lot wow. of money. That is a lot of yeah. jewelry or some several very, very high-end pieces. So, yeah. And then Dot King in March of 1923. So, these were all of a span of about a year. And they were really trying to connect some dots here that did not want to be connected. For instance... Uh, Quote, two men connected with the Sholkoff case are said to have stayed later at the same New Brunswick hotel, which employed a man who disappeared from the apartment house where Miss King lived. End quote. And I'm like, eh, it seems kind of tenuous. Like, hmm, I don't, I don't, I don't know. So I don't know if it's a gang. Maybe a couple of these were committed by the same person or persons, but it seems more likely it would be somebody close to you who knows you know, if, if, if it's a blackmail situation, it has to be somebody you know that knows what what they're going to blackmail. You know, like you have to know somebody's private business in order to do that. So and have proof, which the letters would be proof. So but they had to have known that she had the letters as well. So you definitely had to be, I think, in her orbit is my theory. We didn't really have any movement on the case. What we did have was one more thing in 1929, uh, Aurelia Fisher, who was part of Guamare's alibi, she was at a party with McBrien, the other part of the alibi, and she fell off a balcony. Fell off. Oops. 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 I tripped and jumped four feet. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. She did manage to survive long enough to get to the hospital, where her mother and sister came to see her and reported that she confessed to perjuring herself in Dot King's murder investigation. And uh, she did later die from her injuries, so no more information came from that. No one was ever caught or prosecuted. Uh, Mitchell did 
uh, his wife did stay with him somehow. That must have been a lot of orchids and diamond and jade bracelets. Uh, he died in 1949 at the age of 78 without really anything else newsworthy occurring. Guimaraes finished off his jail term for the fraud, then changed his name, and basically his life after that until he died in 1952 was just drinking and, you know, schmoozing wealthy widows and doing other things to them, probably. There were three movies made based on this case, and Dot King was known as the Broadway butterfly but she isn't the only one but i'm gonna save that case for another uh old tiny crimey and a butterfly in the slang of the day was a girl who lives the nightlife of cabarets and i have <laughs> from a newspaper at the time that i mentioned in my sources um the uh, indianapolis something or other i think um the Broadway glossary. You'll hear it in the sources, so you'll know what it is. I don't need to tell you what it is now. I'm not scrolling up. I refuse. Um, okay. Here are striking examples of the weird vocabulary possessed by some of Broadway's half-world, as disclosed in the investigation into the murder of Dorothy King, beautiful model. Butterfly, I've already told you. Good time, girly. A butterfly before she has found sugar. A sugar is money. An angel is a man with sugar, any age. A heavy sugar baby is a girl coated with sugar, one who has found out how to separate men from large quantities of money or things it will buy. A heavy sugar guy is the heavy sugar baby's victim. Where the sugar blows is live wire resorts. What were they doing? I, I know electricity was kind of new, but don't, don't do things with live wires. <laughs> so confused uh, a papa was an elderly admirer with lots of sugar a daddy was not as old as papa but with just as much sugar a sweetie was a, a man with no sugar but lots of quote-unquote love that the quotes make it feel really cynical like really cynical <laughs> like, i think like whenever you put love in quotes uh, the uh, direct english translation is massive penis yeah, I think so. A buddy, spelled with an I, uh, is the same as a sweetie, but more of a business associate than a lover. A, a heavy, yeah, A heavy sugar sweetie is a rare and perfect combination. Love plus sugar. It's a wallet crossed with a vibrator. <laughs> a gold digger is a heavy sugar baby not afraid to admit it. A sap a private term for one who gives up heavy sugar and come on stuff is the business of vamping heavy sugar guy for sweetie's sake so that is the story of the dorothy king murder still unsolved to this day but i'm pretty sure that it was i think it was mitchell and he stole the letters as to to divert attention away and, and make the police think that it was somebody else to point the figure probably in Guimare's direction or possibly King's brother, but anybody else, because, you know, he steals the letter. It's, it does two things for him. It keeps him safe. And, you know, it also helps to sort of divert attention away. So that's what I think. Yeah, I got to agree with that. I'm going to go Guimara's. Is that how you say it? Guimara's. Yeah, something like that. Guimara's. I literally just typed into my phone, who killed Doc King? 
and in bold letters, Gomares. Huh, <laughs> I was like, oh. And then like underneath it says he was suspected, but they couldn't prove it. And I'm like, uh-huh. So even Wikipedia is like, no, it was him. It was totally him. We can't say that, but I mean, it was totally him. <laughs> do have that past history of violence that does kind of um, make me wonder. Uh, it, it does seem like he's more likely, but the, the more likely makes me want to go in the other direction. That's what makes me want to go for Mitchell, who seemed to like the cloak and dagger stuff. So that is another indication. It's all circumstantial. I can't build a case with this. No, but you know what? Like sometimes the obvious answer is the answer. That is true. Yeah, that is very, very true. I just personally like to go for the like less obvious one just for funsies to see what I can do with it. So I appreciate it. Yes. I do. <laughs> Good. Well, I, that I was... still I wanted to be Doherty just because I hate his name. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that because I looked at it like five <laughs> times before I could actually pronounce it in my head. I was like, Doherty? No, I don't think so. Didn't there used Do to be a bar Doherty? around here called Doherty's Territory? Yeah, yeah, Doherty something. I don't know if it's territory or what, but there was a Doherty something or other that was um closed down, bitches. <laughs> yeah, but I can't remember where it was. But it doesn't Woodside. Oh, it was Woodside. Okay, all right, yeah. all right. Yeah, I guess I, I was there once or twice back in the day. But yeah, so that was ladies' night, you guys. That was really fun. We need to do this once in a while. You know, just like kind of like theme nights with where we all present cases, but it was really fascinating to get to hear about, you know all three of these very, very different women who all lived at the same time. We did that yeah. by accident. That totally was by, by accident. accident. <laughs> yes. Delightful. So we yeah, we are all way around the world. Yes, we did. It was all, it was super international too. Love it. New York, it. London and Japan. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I guess I did all the other stuff at the top, but I forgot the rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Yeah, if you like this, go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. You know, tell us, you know, if you like the, the regular format or this special changing things up format better. Just tell us how, you know, like uh, awesome we are, I guess. You know, you, you, you know the drill. You know what to say. We don't need to tell you. Um, so, yeah, there's that. And that's I've done all my other stuff. So what you guys doing this weekend? Um, I will go first. So we might be having an outside game night with just a couple of people still trying to do like a respectable distancing. But um, so yeah, that is that is my agenda for this weekend is to try to figure out how to socially distance games. Yeah, that seems um, difficult, but I, I'm sure you'll you'll be able to make it work because you're you're always good at that stuff. <laughs> So I don't know. We could just like stand in the yard and throw shit at each other. That I mean, that's social distancing. I'll bring the Always lawn darts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lawn darts! <laughs> I wish they still made them, the real ones. I mean, I could three D print some stuff out that would hurt us. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Scott, right. I kept you this weekend. I'm gonna three D print out some stuff that'll hurt us. Yeah, I kind of assumed <laughs> now. Pretty much gave me, yeah. That was that seemed pretty likely. What are you getting into? Um, I am going to. What am I going to do? I'm going to do some work on the other podcast, and I I, I caught up on some of my cross stitching the other day because we we had to to travel for a medical thing, and so yeah, um, I cross stitch when I travel. It's just what I do. So some of that. I had something else that felt exciting, but I cannot for the life of me think of what it was. I, I I don't know. I'm going to 
try and figure out what I'm forgetting so that I don't forget to do it. <laughs> Maybe I'll read a book. Yeah, I'm going to read a book. So, yeah. Have you ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Oh, multiple times. Yes. Okay. We actually good. covered it on my previous podcast um, that is no longer available. But, um, yeah, we, we, we did a, an episode on... Because I read it once when I was, like... I think I first read it when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I read it again for the... I, I think I read it again sometime in my 20s when I first introduced Jackson to it. And he loved it. And then I read it again for the podcast. So yeah, it was. I, I love, I love, 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 love that book. It's one of. It's probably one of my top ten. It's got to be. Now, have you have you read all of them in the series? No, I don't believe I have. Okay, okay. Figure out what the next one is, and I'll more than happily loan them to you. I've got every Hitchhiker's Guide there is. It Hitchhiker's Guide was the first book I ever, like the first novel I ever read. And Great choice. Yeah, Great choice. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And the neat thing was my buddy Barry had this like cassette tape of like this comedy skit of a guy talking to a computer about making tea that I had no idea where it was from. He didn't know what it was from. And all of a sudden I'm reading this book and holy shit, there's the comedy skit written out, you know, and it's this comedy skit I've, I've loved for years and he, he didn't know where it came from. And I, uh, I have all the books, even the last one that wasn't written by Douglas Adams. It was written by someone named Ian Cooper. And it's, uh, it's, it's fairly decent. It fits in well with the others. It's called, I think it's called And Another Thing. Okay. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely would, uh, would borrow those from you. Not a problem. Awesome. So that has been our show. Thank you so, so much for listening. And, yeah, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to our filthy words. Bye. Remote, Bye. Three words for you people. Remote-controlled penis. <laughs>